Now here at the center of the book, we find a long description of one of Israel's annual feasts, the Day of Atonement. Odds are that not every Israelite's sin and rebellion would be covered through the individual sacrifices. And so once a year, the high priest would take two goats. One of these would become a purification offering and atone for the sins of the people. And the other was called the scapegoat. The priest would confess the sins of Israel and symbolically place them on this goat, and then it would be cast out into the wilderness. Again, this is a very powerful image of God's desire to remove sin and its consequences from his people so that God can live with them in peace. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Christian Church, to each of you here in the West Auditorium, to everybody joining us in the East as well. It's just over there a moment ago to greet a few people over there, and to everybody that's joining us online, welcome again to First Christian Church. If perhaps I've not had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Wayne, I'm part of the pastoral team, and we're going to spend some time together today looking at Leviticus chapter 16. I'd invite you to take a Bible right now, maybe from the pew rack in front of you in the, in the West, in the East, there should be someone walking around with Bibles right now. Or maybe you want to grab it on your smartphone, Leviticus chapter 16. We'll be reading quite a lot from there today, so I'd invite you to keep that open. Close to the front of the book, third, third, um, third major book in the Bible itself, okay? So as we start today, I want to assume that you're a good driver. The problem is when we assume everybody's a good driver, then we go, oh, everybody, could we say that everybody watching and participating today is above average? when it comes to driving skills. We'd all like to say that, but who are we kidding? If we were all above average, the average would go up, wouldn't it? So there you go, and then we'd be all average again. It's a, you can't all be above average, but if you see one of these in the road, what, what are you supposed to do? Pay attention, right? This means something's coming up very soon. Or say, for example, you're driving down the highway and, um, and you see a note that says, well, highway, the signs say, Look at, watch out ahead. There's going to be a, a, a change in the lanes. You go, in the way in which I'm talking about it, you go, what's coming? And you, you want to know a little bit more. And so I, you'd be saying, okay, I'm driving, I'm driving. Where's this lane change coming? And you're concerned. Well, sure enough, you could come up on a scene that looks like this. We'll look at the screen. It's obviously a moment when two lanes are about to come into one lane. And you're going to have to drive between some orange cones, right? You're going to go from one lane on one side or one lane on the other side, and you're going to end up driving right down the middle of the road. The cones direct you as such. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take this ongoing sermon series looking at the book of Leviticus, and we're going to, if you will, see where the cones of Leviticus push us. If you're just joining us, what we've been doing in recent weeks is... Um, examining this book within the Bible that's often overlooked. Leviticus details ancient Israel's story in the first year or so that it was um, in existence. They've been in, the Jewish people have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They get their freedom, they leave, and within a year, a lot of things happen. They become a, a, a nation on the move. There's a new government, a governing polity, if you will, there's a, they have a, a military that's really strong and is growing. You read the book of Numbers, you'll see all the numbers of men, fighting men, who are going to be in the army. There's this new way of thinking as a nation. 
As a, they now have a recognized religion that they say, this is who we are. We are a monotheistic nation. We're only going to worship one God, which is so different than all the nations around us. And part of that new faith, if you will, that new understanding of what, how they were different from other people included, they had to learn how to worship God. And the book of Leviticus particularly gives us what a lot of that worship is. And there's, there's a literary device that's used in the book of Leviticus that perhaps you're not aware of that's used at various points throughout Scripture that are, it's kind of like cones in the road. You say, oh, I could ride down, drive down this side, I could drive down this side, except the cones would push you to the middle. And it's, it's an ancient literary device that maybe you've heard of before. It's called chiasm. And a chiasm works like this. An author states something. I want to tell you this. That's an outside cone. And at the end of the passage, the author will say the same thing again. So you've got cones outside here, right? And then the author says, I'm going to make a second statement. And then so the cones have moved in a little bit. And on the back side of that passage of Scripture, the cone moves in and the statement is made again. Then the third statement is made. And then the third statement is repeated. Now third from the end. You go, What's this way? Well, it's a passage of Scripture that is a chiasm that might help you with this. It's from Romans chapter 10 that you've probably heard this before. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe that God raised him, believe in your heart, pardon me, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That's a chiasm. And let me see if I can explain it this way. The first statement in this chiasm in Romans chapter 10 is at the begin. It's, it's found at both the beginning and the end. It says, "If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord," that's the first thing that he says. But notice it's basically repeated at the very end of the passage again. You can see it's um, it is um, set aside in, in green, if you will. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, it's repeated at the very end. And it is with your mouth that you profess and you are saved. So you've got the outer cone. Then the next cone moves in a little bit. If you believe with your heart, and then that's repeated again at the end. So you've got now the second set of cones pushing you to the very center of the passage. And the author is saying that the text in the middle is the most important. All the other stuff is, is important, but the most important is that God raised Jesus from the dead. All the speaking of the heart and all the believing are dependent upon Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, then all the speaking and all the believing wouldn't mean of anything, right? So that's a small chiasm. There is a very large chiasm within the book of Leviticus that does the same thing, takes these cones, one at the beginning, one at the end, second from the, begin, second from the beginning, second from the end, and pushes it in. It starts with the first seven chapters. It shows the ways in which people draw near to God. You can see chapters 1 through 7, Israel draws near to God. Chapters 26 through 27 are how Israel lives with God. The next section begins in chapter 8. And it's repeated again, second from the last as well. It deals with the nation's priests. And then the third idea is for the people, how they're to be healthy and how they're to, and then it's third from the last. And you see how these cones are pushing us in? And you read there chapters 8 through 10, and then you've got um, 11 through 15 and 17 through 22 about health for people. What's the chapter that's missing? In the very center. 11 through 15, chapter 16 is missing. So the, the author of, of Leviticus is, has created this big chiasm, these cones in the road saying, Come, 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 look, 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 
right at chapter 16 is the most important. In other words, in this first year of ancient Israel's story, the most important aspect of their life together, the story emphasized by the author of Leviticus, the key to Israel's spirituality is found in chapter 16 as it describes the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement? What's that? Well, you may be familiar, perhaps, that modern Jews reflect on the Day of Atonement. It's called, typically, uh, in our time, Yom Kippur. You probably hear, well, they're having Yom Kippur. What's that all about? Well, that is a day of prayer and repentance that Jewish people observe today. And it is the original, if you will, Day of Atonement. So what happens on the Day of Atonement? Well, it's different today than it was in the ancient world. But in the ancient world, it involved a complex ceremony using special priestly garments and sacrificial animals and incense, purification of something called the holy place, had this tent in the middle of the Israelite camp. They're moving from place to place, and there's this big tent in the middle of it. And, and you go from, from this end of the tent to the back end of the tent, and holy, more holy, most holy place. And so it involved all of that being purified, and it involved killing of animals, and uh, the peoples was c- confessed over the sins of, a, of goats. We're going to read all this today. And you have this very un- clear understanding that in the midst of all these ceremonies that we're going to read about today, It was a relationship between God and people, a covenantal relationship, a contract, if you will. Do this, and your sins will be forgiven. So let's read some of this together. And as we read, I want you to remember the big theme of Leviticus is that it's really answering this question. What does God require of us? What do we have to do to get God's grace? What do we have to do to get God to look at us? And the answer is to love God and love others. And the Day of Atonement is the ultimate expression of loving God. And during the events of the Day of Atonement, the high priest is to go into the inner part, into the inside room of the temple, or pardon me, of the tabernacle, of the tent, and he's to seek forgiveness for all the nation. And I'll tell you now, if you've got kids with you, it's a lot of blood. So hang with me, okay? Beginning chapter 16, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother... They are brothers. They are blood brothers. Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he'll die. So this is chapter 16, verse 2. If you just show up in this holy place without proper preparation, it's not going to be good for you. You won't be able to stand in my presence. I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how he's to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ramp for a burnt offering. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen stash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments that he must bathe himself with. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite communities to take two male goats for sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So you can see it's already pretty complex what he has to do. He has to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he's to take the two goats, so he's got two goats with him, and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent. He is to cast lots for the goats. Essentially, I don't know how, we don't, I don't know how they cast these lots, but basically, flip a coin, heads, tails. All right, and so the goats are assigned one lot versus another lot. He shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. The goat chosen by lot as the second goat, known as a scapegoat, shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement. And here's what's going to happen to the second goat. It's not going to be sacrificed. Instead, 
It'll be sent into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Verse 15. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain. So now he's going to go into the holy place and do with it as he did the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he'll make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and the rebellion. This will come back up later on as we chat today. It's about rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins have been, they're going to make atonement for it. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time he goes in until he comes out. And so you have this elaborate ceremony in which the high priest gets dressed in this very special tunic, if you will, the uniform that we evaluated a few weeks ago. And then he's got a number of animals that he's going to be working with over the next little while throughout the day. A lot of them would have been sacrificed except for one goat. The one goat would be called the scapegoat. And notice, he can't just come into the presence of God. He can't go into this most holy place like willy-nilly. I mean, this, is very, this happens one time a year, and there's a big curtain in front of the most holy place. It's really thick. And notice again at verse 2. Aaron is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover of the ark, or else he'll die. I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Now, if you could think of it this way, Aaron is the high priest, and he's got responsibility for a nation of about a million people. So, like you would think with anybody that was in charge of the spirituality for a lot of people, he would have staff. He would have fellow priests that would work under him. And they would more or less, if you could put it this way, be his handlers. I suppose you could say it that way. And they're a little bit concerned that he do things right. So they're, they're, they're dressing the guy. He's got to put on the, he's got to bathe. He's got to put on the undergarments. He's got to put on the right tunic in the right way. And then they're thinking, okay, we're going to send this guy into the holy place. And he's going to be there in front of God. And what happens if he messes up? What if he does not do it right and he dies? What, how will we know? So they sewed some bells in the bottom of his tunic, and they listened from the outside. And as long as they hear the bells, he's moving around. But if the bells stop tinkling, ringing, we got a problem, right? He's dead. He's flat. So they tied a rope around him, and they listened for the bells. And the plan was that if the bells stopped ringing, drag the guy out. At least we can bury him. But if he lived, if he gets outside the tent, outside the tabernacle, then it's time for this one animal that's left, the scapegoat, to symbolically receive the sins and be sent out to the camp, outside the camp to die by itself. Beginning in verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. What's he going to do with this live goat? He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and the rebellion. There's this rebellion business again. All of the wickedness and rebellion is going to be confessed over the head of this goat. All their sins, he's going to put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. The scapegoat symbolically takes the nation's sins away from where we live, away from the camp, 
and the scapegoat goes out into the wilderness. And you're like me, you go, this is a lot of stuff. This is a lot of doing this, that, and the other. Why not just offer forgiveness? Why not just say, God, we're sorry for what we did. Please forgive us. Well, that's, we, we ask that question perhaps because we don't understand the gravity of sin before God. What is sin? Well, biblical theologians refer to it as missing the mark, that if this is God's standard, none of us get there. As a matter of fact, in the book of Romans, it says that all of us sin. All of us have fallen short of the mark. We can't get to where, to where God expects us, and that's a problem. And in the long run, isn't it all about rebellion? This business of this is where God wants me to live, and I'm not going to get there. I mean, reflect Reflect on your own propensities, if you, if you will, for wrongdoing. Perhaps um, now and then you lie. You just don't tell all the truth. And it's just the way you seem to be wired. And you say, man, I wish I didn't do that, but it still happens. Or perhaps you carry a self-worth that is all puffed up. That's called pride. Perhaps you think too lowly of yourself. Instead of thinking of yourself too highly, you think too lowly of yourself. That too is called pride. You know why? Because you're allowing Satan's view of you to overshadow God's image within you. You're choosing how to think of yourself instead of how God looks at you. Perhaps you struggle with gossip. And it's just the way it sort of, you know, you want to know the latest stuff and you want to display it to other, tell other people. Or maybe it's some sexual proclivity that's outside the Bible's view of healthy sexual practices in marriage. You know, I, I, this is my observation. There are as many sins as there are people. And in the long run, each individual sin and each individual sin is based in rebellion, isn't it? It's based on... Well, God says this, but I'm going to do it this way. God has one way of living up here, and I'm choosing. I'm, I'm Okay, fair enough, God, but I want to do it this way. What is that? That's rebellion, right? Notice how Leviticus puts it. The priest will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and what? The rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins are. Whatever their sins may have been, we'll call it rebellion. It's rebellion in one form or another. It might be really big rebellion. It might be small rebellion. It might be sideways rebellion. It might be upside down rebellion. But how does God view it? All of that is sin. There might be a myriad of reasons why you or I have a particular bent toward a particular sin. But in the long run, no matter what excuses we make for it, it's a barrier between us and God. And you can think of it this way. It's like a dark hole. And that's the shape of our lives.
Now, apparently, according to Leviticus, the blood of sacrificed animals and the scapegoat took care of the sin. The scapegoat actually carried the sins of the people away from where they lived. Now, this process, taking, taking the blood behind the curtain into the inner sanctuary, the inner most holy place, apparently all that on this Day of Atonement covered the sins of the people. They were forgiven for their rebellion. They were, it was an atonement. You know, the Hebrew word for atonement conveys this idea of covering, both in the sense that it, it hides, because that sin is really plain to see right now. With that, I mean, you go, well, it's, it's, it's out there, right? It's this big blackness within our lives, if you will. But it's not only, the atonement is not only to cover all of that, but it also is, uh, the word for atonement, um, actually it, it means to cover um, someone's guilt as well. In other words, this person has been found guilty, but if I atone for them, I'm going to cover that guilt, and that guilt is, that penalty is going to be paid by someone else. And in the case of Leviticus, it was paid for by the animals. When God forgave the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement, those sins were carried away from the nation's camp. They were covered by the blood of the animals brought into God's presence. And a difficult and painful sacrifice was used to show how, how sin is so abhorrent to God. The blood covered the sin. The guilty charge of sin against the, for the offense was forgiven and carried out, carried out of the camp. And so what we've been saying in recent weeks is that the sacrifices shown throughout all of Leviticus were put in place to help people come near to God because if they're people of sin, they come into the presence of God, they're dead. We're, if, that would be, if we were to come into the presence of God with sin, we'd be looking for somebody with a rope to pull us out and we'd be flat on the ground, ready to be buried. But through the process of atonement, people who are far off can come near. God and sinners can be together. In fact, theologian Barry um, John Berry acknowledges this way, that atonement is one of the few theological terms with roots in the English language. It is the process by which, and this is what's really helpful for us in our language, the process by which two parties who are at odds with one another, when they atone, they are made one with each other. It's an old Middle English word from the Middle Ages showing how two separate parties are brought into harmony and unity. So the question then is, okay, if if that's the case, if this is the sense of my life right now, and I don't have a day of atonement that I can step into, there's no blood sacrifices of animals taking place at present in Jerusalem once a year, what do we do today? There's no tabernacle or temp- temple anymore. The tabernacle is long gone. The temple that was built to replace it in Jerusalem is gone. How can you and I, who are far from God be brought near to God. How can our sins be covered? That's why Jesus came. He died so that those who are far from God can come near. That's you and that's me. Now, the scriptures tell us that something really dramatic happened in this regard on the mo- at the moment that Jesus died. In other words, Jesus dies centuries after Leviticus is put in place. But when he dies... The scriptures tell us that at that very moment, the curtain in the temple, still in existence, remember there was a curtain that was separating the most holy place 
from the people. From, and you had one room, next room, and then you get this big curtain. You go behind the big curtain. Now, that curtain was very tall. It was about four inches thick. It had linen. I mean, it was linen with, with thread going back and forth through it like that. So no, it was very heavy. And at the moment that Jesus died, Scripture tells us that the curtain literally, if you, by itself, if you will, literally tore in half. The finger of God ripped it wide open. And suddenly, what happens? That presence of God that was inside there is now accessible for everyone. Everyone's sin can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. So that forgiveness is not only one time, one year, once a year for one man, namely the high priest going in there, but now it's available for all people. As a matter of fact, the New Testament puts it this way, that Jesus, when he died, he didn't enter the most holy place by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all. So it's, it's done once. This is no longer an annual event. It's done, he entered the holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer speckled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But this is really good news. How much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead us to death so that we may serve the living God? In other words, something very dramatic happened at the moment of Jesus' death. Your rebellion, my rebellion, was changed. As a matter of fact, I think it, it warrants you standing up to hear this, if you wouldn't mind standing together. If you're in the East Auditorium, would you stand with this as well? What happened to your rebellion at the moment Jesus died? blood of Jesus Christ covers your sin. The blood of Jesus Christ covers your rebellion. The blood of Jesus Christ saves us. All our unrighteousness is forgiven. All of the propensities that we have to this, that, or the other, it's gone. Remember we said that for atonement means to cover? It's all covered. You don't see it anymore. You see the blood. When, when, G, when, when God looks at you, when God looks at me, friend, I've got some really good news. If you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, you're, it's atoned for. All the junk. The bad decision you made when you were 15 and a half, the bad decision you made when you were 55 and a half, the bad decision that you would be, contemplate this week, even the thought of it is a problem for you. It's all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's atoned. Atoned means covering. Would you mean standing, please? And Les and I are going to help you kind of understand that a little bit more.
as we look at this song that uh, hopefully you caught at the beginning of uh, our time together. Because uh, I want us to understand that all of us have a lot of stuff that we've got in our lives. Errors that we look at the, later on, we go, man, that just wasn't an error. That was just plain out bad. It was me I'm really messing up. So I want to remind you of where that ends up and how it's been covered by the blood of Christ. And as you know, this song I invite you to sing. Sing it one more time. I am covered over with the robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to me. I am covered over with the precious blood of Jesus and He lives in me. What a joy it is to know my heavenly Father. Be seated, friends. Which brings us all to this moment communion. For the followers of Jesus Christ, we say, I'm covered over by the blood of Jesus Christ. My sins are done with. It's all good between me and God. And the person who is far from God is now close. Can I remind you of why we do this? Because what we are remembering is, in fact, the Day of Atonement as it's seen through the life of Jesus Christ. We, we read this in Scripture that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. I'm like, I'm like the animals that are being broken. And then it says, then after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is language that sometimes we don't fully understand. He says, this is the new covenant. Remember we saw that this was a covenant that God was making with the people of Israel? This is, it was said it was a contract. It was an arrangement in which people could come near. And he says, now that old covenant is gone because here's the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. Not the blood of animals, but in my blood. This is just hours before he died. And he says, I want you to drink it in remembrance of me. Basically, I'll make atonement for you. It's a really cool thing that's also found in that word atonement, that kafah. Long story short, there's three kind of symbols in there in that word. One is covering. It's based on the letters that are in the word, the Hebrew letters in the word. It's based on covering. It's, there's, a letter with, there's a letter also in the word that refers to wounds. And there are more letters in there that refer to the, the, an open hand of uh, a father putting blessings on a child. So, so, so what's being said by just using the word atonement, covering, wounds, open hands of God? Think about this. As you are about to eat and drink and remember the forgiveness, the atonement that God made for you through Jesus Christ, you have this understanding that it's powerful stuff. God is putting his open hands on the wounds of your life and saying, I got this. It's covered. So to that end, let's pray and then eat and drink. Lord, thank you for coming, Jesus. I'm so thankful, God, that the patterns of the Old Testament are lived out in the New Testament. I'm so thankful for the coming of Jesus Christ and that we have access to you behind the curtain, God, to the work of your Holy Spirit, you are here right now. And Lord, I pray for each individual in this room, in the East Auditorium, in the West Auditorium. May you gracefully cover us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus Christ.